0: the Wednesday's Child podcast. Two people joining me on the pod today. We've got our guest of the day is Hope Virgo, who you all know very well within the eating disorders community. And the reason we're catching up with Hope, you'll remember we did a podcast episode a few months back with Hope. But the reason we're catching up now is as we sit here in what is what the middle of November, goodness me, where did that year go, is the chance to catch up with Hope about a report that she recently took back to Parliament as a collaboration exercise that she's been working on. It was just a really insightful report that gives an indication as to the cost of having an eating disorder and kind of where we are with um, how well or not organisations are working together to raise the uh, awareness around eating disorders and what can be done to improve the situation. Also on the podcast episode today is Abby, who you'll know well within the eating disorders uh, community again, but also from the Wednesday's Child uh, family and Abby has been fighting really hard to get the message about um, perinatal eating disorders uh, health out there so we'll touch on that as well with our conversation with Hope. So I'm going to kick off Hope just by asking you, tell me about the report, how did it come about and what's, what's the kind of latest with it? It must have been a huge moment to be taking that into Parliament for the kind of update on what you'd found. Yeah no. So, um, so the, I've been working on the report probably for the last three four months
1: actually um so working very closely with Ernst and Young who are a consultancy company um, and they basically did a lot of the research a lot of the data gathering um, as well um and kind of analyzing the figures things like that to make sure that the data we had was really really solid and kind of really concrete as well um and then yeah we basically found that the cost of eating disorders on the UK in 2020 was um around 9.4 billion. The reason I say around is because we looked at two lots of statistics. So we looked at the NHS data um, from 2016, which estimated that about 16% of the adult population will have an eating disorder at some point and screen positive. Um, And if we look at that population, the actual figure came in above 11 billion. Um, But we published, um, obviously published all the figures, but the the figure that we kind of pushed more was the lower figure, um, which was based on statistics uh, around kind of the 1.6 billion, um, which is a figure that we all kind of hear banded around quite a lot as well um, in the eating disorder world. Um, so yeah, the cost, the report looked at the costs um, for kind of uh, the individual, it looked at healthcare costs, it looked at carer's costs, it looked at loss of kind of profit, loss of work capacity, um, things like that. And we tried to get a real kind of accurate picture of all the additional costs, like all of the long-term costs as well. Um, I think particularly with things like eating disorders, we, we often forget that there will be kind of additional costs around dental treatment. Um, for some people, they might have to have IVF, Um, So looking, yeah, kind of at all of that as well. But what we what we do believe and from kind of the research and the additional kind of case studies we looked at too, is actually the figure that we got was probably an underrepresentation of actually what's going on at the moment we know with eating disorders that people feel so much shame reaching out for support that that we don't have the proper data um, and the proper statistics in place to actually give a proper number around how many people are struggling. So we think that there's probably a load more people that just don't fit into that kind of neat diagnostic criteria um, to have an eating disorder. So yeah, which was unfortunate, um, but one of the key asks that we did push for actually is uh, to get more data. So to look at what data we've got, look at where the data gaps are too. Um, and I think the other thing kind of with the carers costs, um, which I know we kind of talked about a little bit before the podcast started as well, was with regards to kind of the work that carers are doing kind of in the home or having to not go to the office as much or having to offer that additional support at home again is a, is a hidden cost that I think quite often we don't always take into account when we're looking at this sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, so often that we hear from families, you know, there tends to be like maybe if it's a case of a child, there's often one parent decides not to continue with their career because that child needs too much intensive care, you know, just in the home environment because they can't maybe get a hospital bed or whatever, or just isn't able to cope themselves with contending with work and dealing with the fact that somebody in the household has got an eating disorder. I guess, Abby, you must feel very strongly about that area as well, because obviously you were an adult with a child by the time you first experienced an eating disorder, and that must have had a big impact on your family.
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah, it's, you know, when you finally sort of, uh, I suppose, open up about it and, 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 you know, your biggest fear is okay, this is going to destroy my family, or this is going to turn up all our lives upside down, and and we won't manage. You know, I, you know, we had yeah a mortgage to pay and and a child to be looking after, and you know, got to the point where I I couldn't work because um, I was so poorly, and and you know, with with my older son who's now seven, I um I didn't hadn't yet developed my eating disorder, and you know he started nursery age two and I I was doing work and you know we were managing and and this you know then when I kind of fast forward five years to having a baby when I I did have an eating disorder you know my he he had to start nursery at four months old because I was having two or three appointments every day for my um, intensive community treatment um, and I wasn't earning so suddenly you just are faced well hang on how do we actually pay for this how know and we were relying then on my husband's income and you know then he was reluctant to take too much time off because then you know um what do you do then so it is it's there is so much that you almost don't think about at the time um and I you know I applied for um the PIP payments when I was an inpatient later in hospital and and wasn't awarded it Um, despite yeah being impatient they said you know obviously didn't affect my day-to-day life and and so then suddenly you know your plans change again you think well hang on you know financial worries become become really crippling and when you add that to you know both mine and my husband's distress about you know about my illness and, and treatment and everything else it really adds an awful lot of pressure um and I yeah I I, it's I we you know I'm fortunate in that I you know my husband had a good job and you know we we weren't going to be homeless if um you know if I needed treatment but you know for many you know I think the report shows that um eating disorders are just as prevalent in low-income families as in high-income families and not everybody is going to be in a position where they can sort of muddle by on one person's salary and and, and pay for childcare so that they can actually engage in in treatment. You know, there are some really tough decisions that must come when you're basically having to choose between, you know, feeding your child, keeping them safe, keeping a roof over everyone's head and going, okay, I'm going to prioritise getting better because actually, you know, it's all... But without that, you've got nothing, have you? So... So it's, yeah, it's a real kind of cauldron of, of difficult stuff.
0: And Hope, I'm conscious that you went about this piece of research in kind of post, well, mid pandemic time. So in a very different picture than maybe if it had done been done a few years ago. I know it must be really difficult to draw any kind of comparison because your kind of level of insight that you gained through doing this major piece now hasn't been done, not in parallel in previous years. It's not like this is an annual study that you can draw on lots of experience previously, but could you really get a sense of where the COVID impact was coming in? Was it was that possible to do that?
1: Yes, we did actually do, uh, we did in the report, we also touched on uh, 2019 uh, costings as well. Um, And we saw a huge increase just from 2019 as well. So I do think that, yeah, COVID has contributed to the cost. But I also think that maybe in some situations, actually, COVID's kind of probably made it, I know we've had a rise in eating disorders, but with regards to kind of remote sessions, things like that, actually, COVID might have actually, I guess morph the stats in that way too. You might have two parents at home with children, and one of them is getting support, but actually, the, the I don't know, the, the female can still work while the husband's going and seeing his therapist online because the kids are at home as well. So I don't know whether it would have morphed it that much. I think. It would be this kind of study i think it would be interesting to do probably every two years to see how how it's being affected what we're doing kind of from a data perspective actually whether the early intervention stuff whether the prompt interventions are really starting to work um as well the study was also done back in 2015 um by pwc and beach um but actually when they did it they only looked at a really really small sample of people so about 500 people were interviewed Um, So again, I think this is the, this is the most robust study that's been done. Um, So you're right, it's hard to get I think the comparisons in place.
0: And, and I know, obviously, you, you took it to Parliament and there was a real kind of desire to make sure it was sort of front and centre and it's going to be kind of up there on the national stage. What kind of feedback have you got? I mean, we know within the eating disorders community, we, you know, beat the drum all the time and we're very used to this kind of narrative that we have about, you know, not enough is going into this, not enough research, not enough is going into treatment, early intervention, community services, yada, yada, yada. But what kind of response did you get from taking this to Parliament and realising that actually some people really lack any insight into how grave the situation is. Um, yeah, so it was, it was really interesting, actually. And I think,
1: I think with eating disorders, um, and I think we might have talked about this a little bit last time, as I do think they're still a very stigmatized illness, they're still massively misunderstood. And I think particularly from an adult population, as well. Um, I think some people probably think that they're just an illness that affects teenage girls, and you go out of it and all of that as well that comes with it. But i think for for me actually we and for the group that we was there kind of presenting last week was we did feel like there was some real i guess Yeah, some real motivation to make change happen. Um, I think obviously in all of these kind of events, you do get the kind of wishy-washy statements um, and you get the kind of political answers in some situations. But it was really interesting to see actually the amount of MPs that really, really care about this as a cause and really believe that something needs to change. Um, and a kind of I guess banging the drum in Parliament and kind of within that kind of both House of Commons and both Houses of Lords um, to make that change as well and I did feel like actually in the meeting last week it did feel like there was a real shift forward in actually right this is what we need to do we made I guess before the meeting kind of made sure that it wasn't going to just be talking and going over the problems and things like that but it was going to be something where there was this kind of proper concrete action Uh, plan put in place and then all of the concrete action follow up but I think it's I think the main issue um, is that I don't know whether everybody in the government sees it as an urgent matter to be tackled and it's that level of urgency that actually we, we need to really kind of focus on I think because I think so often with campaigns and things like that it's like they take such a long time to get anywhere and then the government think oh actually like it's not really an urgent issue anymore we've got COVID or we've got brexit stuff or whatever it might be that's going on at the moment and so that then kind of pushes ahead and pushes above everything else so i think it's key after last week to just keep that momentum up and to keep really really focusing and pushing and i think that's where everyone can come in it's like the more noise we make about this and not just about the report but more broadly about eating disorders actually the more likely we are to kind of really make this change
0: do you feel optimistic? I mean, you know, the fact that you've kind of been able to take this report to this level, I like, am I absolutely get what you mean. I think there's always that danger that something else bigger and seemingly more important at the time comes along and that we shift down the list again. But do you feel optimistic that there is a tide turning? Because... I sense you talked about how in some ways COVID has created some good op- opportunities around how families are around able to flex around family um flex around therapy, therapeutic services and things like that. So there are things that have come out of it that are positive. And one of the things I think is the words eating disorders are used so much more than they ever were pre-COVID. Not that anybody would have wished COVID, but for some reason it it really did start to resonate with a lot of people. It was in the newspapers and kind of being talked about in broadcast media pretty much every day because of the impact on children and mental health. So I do get the sense that we understand the topic of eating disorders more broadly across schools, healthcare, local government. It's just there's lots of conversation, and as you and I have talked about before, lots of narrative, will there be the action? Mm.
1: And I think I think that is still an issue. I, I think I do feel optimistic, I feel like people are slowly starting to understand it. I think the real the real battle will be to get the same emphasis on adult services as there are on children's services, because um, quite often I think we hear about the funding going into children's services. But the funding for adult services is just so is just so limited. It's so under resourced, um, and I think also the other thing that really needs to change, which I, I do feel more optimistic about, I think now, but it's just this whole messaging around recovery. I think I think we know statistically that only fifty percent of people make a full recovery, um, and for me, I I actually believe that every person can make a full recovery. And I think it's it's hard, it's really difficult, um, but I do think that everyone can do that and I think it's about trying to actually set people up to really succeed in their recoveries and succeed in their life in that sense. And I think that actually that will be another interesting kind of probably another battle that will be had at some point in the foreseeable future actually to get the government to really realise that actually that's not okay. Like we wouldn't half fix someone who had a broken leg. We shouldn't be half fixing someone who has an eating disorder. We need to be offering them that support until they are fully recovered. And again, I think um, kind of at different points in their lives as well, making sure that everyone has that kind of, yeah, frontline intervention when they need it.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think, you know, we hear sometimes from parents who say that they've actually been told by their specialist or whatever, well, you know, this is the best that you can hope for she's now at this BMI or you know as if that's it done we've done our bit you know move on and I I find that really frustrating when um the journey's not complete with with somebody in recovery.
2: And I think there just needs to be more focus on sort of the before and, and the after the kind of crisis point so You know, if we can get more funding, more focus, more research into the stage where eating disorders are developing, you know, prevention and then, yeah, the kind of early intervention, um, not allowing things to escalate. Um, And then at the other side of it, as you say, you know, if people are sort of being discharged from services when, you know, they're clearly mentally not not well, even if by then they're in a physically slightly healthier body. I think it's that, that before and after the crisis point, you know, it's gonna make a huge difference. You know, I've been really fortunate because although there was quite a few barriers to me actually be able to access treatment in, in the first place, since I've been in treatment, you know, I, they, my particular um, trust, my service have been brilliant because, you know, here I am nearly three years into being in services now and I really, I'm in a, you know, a really a better place than I could ever have hoped I'd have been. And there's no indication that, you know, they're suddenly gonna rush me through to the finish line and just sort of try and um, kind of cut me off because I'm, you know, I'm pretty much recovered because actually, you know, I think the individuals working there are wise enough to know that if you suddenly just cut somebody short of the finish line, chances are they'll you know end up in services again at some point in their life, you know, it might. My therapist was saying the other day, look, you know, if, you, if, you, if we're here and we see you through this, this final stage, we won't hear from you again. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the ideal where actually, yeah, you know, you're in a really robust place. But I think because funding is so limited, it means that there's barely enough to be treating the people who are in crisis so it's just fighting fires, and, and that's just not sustainable. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think as well, like, we also know, don't we, that at
1: the moment there's such issues with the workforce anyway. And it's like we need to find a way to tackle the the ridiculously known numbers of kind of psychiatr- psychiatrists that are out there and get people to actually want to go into eating disorder treatment and to train in it and to be excited about it. I think, And I think that, again, is a stigma issue because people see the stats about not many people recovering and they see the stats and hear the stories of people being really difficult and all of that sort of stuff. And you're like, actually, you, we should be sharing the really positive stories of actually where psychiatrists and nurses and doctors have really saved a person's life and got them their life back on track. And I think that sort of thing would help, I guess, get more of a trained workforce in place as well. But at the moment, the workforce is just so overstretched that they're all completely broken and it's just not gonna help the situation
2: and i think we're at a stage as well where and it's you know it's really disastrous where frontline healthcare professionals who who aren't um specialists are actually scared of interacting with somebody with an eating disorder it's not just that they sort of feel like okay i know i know enough about it to signpost them on and you know i i can do my bit and then the you know the specialist can do their. but it's you know i speak to say you know midwives or gps or um health visitors or anyone and and they all just say yeah we just have no idea what to say we don't know anything about eating disorders so we're given no training so we have no idea what to say and we just end up saying nothing because we don't want to make it worse and i just think that's it's a really critical issue you know if the people that are going to be our first ports of call um you know gps or whatever then actually it's inexcusable for the lack of training to be such that they they're really actively scared of even trying to help somebody with an eating disorder like that's you know that's that's got to be a stepping stone on the way to um people really feeling that you know all healthcare professionals have a, a kind of good grasp of eating disorders
0: and perhaps that's just again, it's one more way in which that anybody who's in the eating disorder community, wherever they've been on the recovery journey, actually, it's on us to all share our stories and to help make sure that healthcare professionals do understand what it's like being in our shoes, the right way to communicate with us, the things that make it more challenging to have an appointment, the things that we need to hear from them. And then, as you say, you know, just kind of being able to be part of that bit that would include more recruitment and retention of people that are specialists. So whether that's making them feel that actually it is rewarding, you know, what could be more rewarding than working with somebody actually starts to make this physical and mental recovery from an illness that, you know, so many people are just their life is on hold and until it is tackled. And I, I heard only this week actually that two more people from a trust that I know have have just handed their notice in and aren't going to complete, um, aren't carrying on after Christmas. And you know, very very competent people. And I asked both of them what what the reason was, and it was just an utter exhaustion. It wasn't to do with money. I mean, you never know, do you? You never know whether, what else they haven't said. But most of it was just utter exhaustion and feeling that they weren't making enough of a difference and the difference they wanted to make, they weren't fully funded to be able to make that difference. So it was just constantly, you know, being on the hiding to nothing. And Abby and I have talked quite a bit about times where parents getting in touch with us and seeking out therapeutic appointments are they're at the end of their tether because they're so frustrated trying to access help in their own communities. And then they end up on Wednesday's child's door. And sometimes they're perhaps, you know, not as gentle in their kind of conversation with us as they might be because they just don't know where else to turn. But, but you can see why that happens. And therefore, you can see why healthcare professionals themselves who might want to do the best that they possibly can. But actually, if their waiting list is really huge and they can't do any more than they can it must be really hard just pushing back families who you know are just breaking apart.
1: Yeah, I think it must be really difficult. And I think, yeah, but I think part of that for me is, like you said, kind of, I think, educating people on the right language to use. And I think if we start treating people like humans and not like they're the illness, then actually I think that probably would be a really, really good starting point for for these like harder conversations as well. And I think looking at what support is out there, I think yes there's not everyone is going to be able to access NHS treatment which is appalling but actually there is some other really good places we can be looking for that support and it might be about thinking I don't know like practically like what can we do in that short term whilst we wait for treatment as well yeah absolutely yeah
2: I think you know because the report obviously showed that only you know one to two percent of people who, whose lives are being significantly impacted by need and are actually getting NHS specialist help mm-hmm. and it's yeah I don't know I I, it's quite mixed my feelings about that when I kind of look at that number because you, you sort of think you know the optimistic part of me thinks well that's that's so shocking that surely some massive change has to happen and happen soon like there is no physical condition where that where that would be deemed acceptable or not you know as you say an urgent crisis situation um but then the other part of me thinks well how yeah how do you how do you start get you know if 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 it is that dire, what are the next steps? And I suppose, yeah, I'm, I'm interested, hoping to as kind of what you would hope the next steps would be from here.
1: Yeah, so I think uh, so. What 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 we've done is um, so myself and a number of other experts have put together a strategy um, with a proper timeframe of implementation, kind of proper strategic, yeah, kind of aims and goals and things that need to be happening over the next six months, the next year, the next two years. Um, And what we're really hoping is that, um, we have presented some of this obviously to the minister and to other MPs and the government, um, but we're looking at actually how we can kind of progress this forward. Um, So a lot of the follow up after last week is like trying to set up, further meetings with the minister to be like actually this is the strategy how can we really make sure this happens but I think that's one of the big things we need at the moment is that proper structured strategy we've never had a proper strategy for eating disorders um, and we've never had proper time frames or funding or resources or anything like that so that for me is like at the top of the list of things that we need to be kind of really really pushing for um yeah
2: I think I don't know you know I'm aware that both Wales and Scotland have had done quite recent kind of um, full reviews of their eating disorder services Um, and obviously you know the report was sort of the recommendation is that we get a sort of national strategy in, in place and I don't know I mean is is one of the next steps to get a review in, in England? So, You know, how do, how do these things work when, when, when there's devolved nations as well?
1: Yeah, so we, we certainly want to be working with Scotland and Wales. Um, they've done a lot of, yeah, additional research. They've got different, I think they've got also got different demographic, different issues at stake as well, but it'd be interesting to work across, yeah, all nations to actually look at what is working, what isn't working. And um, we aren't pushing for a service review in England. We know what the problems are in England. England um, and I just think yeah I think after lots of discussions between kind of myself and um, one of the psychiatrists who sits on kind of the working group for the report um, we kind of were just like do you know what if we do that it's just going to push things off for like another year um, so we've been looking a lot at kind of uh, the uh, um, um, I can't even say that word so I'm not going to try the um, reporting alarms report uh, I'm not sure if you saw raising the alarms report yeah Um So looking at actually all of the issues that came up in that, then again, doing our own little bits of research around what the issues are locally, things like that. And it is the same kind of stuff anyway. Um, I think the the worry is, with all of this sort of stuff, is obviously we need more research, we need more data, but actually we we can't have the research and data or the service provision. Actually, we need to be having both of them at the same time. So we're trying to kind of basically set things up in such a way that we can have both of those things happening kind of, yeah, coordinated. Coordinate, coordinating them together
0: yeah There's a long way to go but I mean it's it's just it's so encouraging to know that actually it's back in the spotlight again the report I think is an invaluable tool because I think it really has raised the point again about those quite alarming figures that for those that have an ounce of an interest they will be reminded that this is the picture and this is why we need something done about it And increasingly, you know, it's it's a sad reality, but I think increasingly everybody out there will know someone who knows someone who is affected by an eating disorder. And maybe that wasn't the case, like, you know, a few years back because fewer people talked about it. But I think it is, although the stigma and shame is still absolutely there, I think the more people that become aware of it, even because it's a neighbour, it's a friend, it's a cousin, it's an employee, and people understand devastating effects that an eating disorder is having I think that that helps people be a little bit more aware and empathetic.
2: That combination of of kind of statistics and the kind of human voice and as you say knowing someone who's been through it um, that's got you know that that combination um, just as we know that kind of um, lived experience and then the kind of expert professional um, insight, you know, they're both vital in, in, in kind of, um, making any kind of changes for, for the eating disorder kind of treatment system because, um, and yet, yeah, so often, um, those things are either separate or, uh, the lived experience voice maybe isn't valued. So I think, yeah, I think having, having both of those things, um, is yeah is really important as you say and and yeah the, you know your focus hope on on really trying to make sure that these changes happen really soon and not once we've done x y or z research or once a review has taken place that really you know these these things need to happen now um yeah i think you know i'd really applaud that because i think so often with these things you know change is so slow and, but yeah, we know, you know, and this report has clearly shown that it just can't wait any longer.
0: I'm very conscious you're with with us for a very short time. Hope you've got things that you've got to get off and do. But I just, I'm I'm conscious of how many people follow you on social media, and we have a platform that makes people, you know, aware of our our voice and maybe listening to this episode. For the purposes of that, can you name kind of one, maybe two things that? anybody out there in the eating disorder community could think about starting to do to make a fundamental difference to how society views an eating disorder. Now I, I guess on that I'm kind of thinking is that making sure that when you see your GP you call them out on stuff or is it I work in an office and I'm going to tell my employer that I want to do a lunchtime talk about eating disorders? I can't, I'm trying to think of the practical reasons that or practical activities that we could all play a little role in.
1: Yeah, really good question. Um, so I think, yeah, I think looking at who is in your your social network maybe is a starting point. So the the workplace lunch and learns are really good, really good suggestion. I think if you're not confident or you don't feel like you want to share your own experience, actually contacting charities, contacting campaigners who might be able to come in and do that for you. Um, also, I think looking at what communications you might have going around in your office, so um, or in your school environment as well, actually. So, can you be putting together some top tips on eating disorders, some myth busting things, um, things like that? I think again is really really helpful. Um, and I think one of my one of my favourite stats um, is actually the, the stat that around only six percent of people with an eating disorder are underweight. Um, because I think, again, it gets helps to dispel quite a lot of the myths around size and shape with eating disorders. Um, I think if people feel comfortable, I think always really, really good to write to their local MP um, to kind of raise that kind of issues around eating disorders, around treatment, sharing experiences, sharing their thoughts on what they think maybe services should look like. Um, local MPs are supposed to come back to their constituents so again it's a good chance to get that kind of yeah topical conversation being discussed at that kind of government level as well Um, and then I think also like just I guess being mindful of the conversations that you're having so something that I think we probably all noticed um, over the last decade but I think particularly over COVID and kind of Again, probably over the summer in the UK when things eased up a little bit was this kind of intense focus on dieting and on calorie counting and things like that. And I I think as individuals, actually, we have a responsibility not just to those people with eating disorders, but actually to the wider kind of population and the future generations to actually stop talking about this sort of stuff. So I think a re- like a really easy commitment for everyone listening would be to just stop talking about dieting, to just stop commenting on people's bodies, to stop commenting on food. And I think particularly with the run up to Christmas, actually just being very, very mindful of those conversations and those narratives that, again, you might be telling yourself
0: to. Oh, such important points. Yeah. And we all know we're heading into that season, don't we? Of. Uh... Christmas and the obsession with worrying about kind of how much people are eating and what level of activity they're doing. So, really, really, really timely points. I'm sure we will make our, our case heard on stressing those on our various platforms. So, Hope, thanks for sharing some of your time with us again. And no doubt we'll catch up with you again when there's a new instalment. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. And thank you everyone for listening. We will be back again soon with another episode. Thanks to Abby and thanks to Hope. That was the Wednesday's Child podcast.